So tonight I'm going to tell you guys uh, a really long story, if that's okay with you guys. No, okay. So um, a few years ago I had the opportunity to have a conversation um, with a guy, I'll say is my friend for now. Um, we, had, we had a fun conversation, uh, which I'm going to share with you about church history and the Bible. And So if you've ever been around when anybody brings up church history or the Bible, you know that I, I love to have long conversations that other people are thinking are boring, but tonight it won't be boring. But I remember uh, how this conversation started. He asked me, we were talking because he is a, a lawyer um, who specializes in uh, adoption and foster care issues, and so we were having a conversation, and he asked me, he said, Justin, why did you decide to be a foster parent? And to be honest, my response shocked me, and I think it shocked him. I said, because I think it would be sin if I didn't. And after I said it, I sat back and I was like, wow, do I really believe that? And so that sparked a really fun conversation. Turns out, you know, he really loves Jesus a lot. And uh, because of his, his uh, work he does, uh, you know, he was also motivated to, to work in adoption and foster care because of um, his faith. And so he had very strong faith. And so he starts telling me, uh, or asking, he's like, hey, do you, do you know about the history of, of like foster care in the early church? And I was like, yeah, a little bit, but tell me more. And so like he starts recounting and he, he's really detailed in church history. And so we have this long conversation about church history and what did the Bible say. And, and so that's what we're going to talk about. And so I don't know how much you guys know, but he was telling me all about like the earliest Christians. Um, so, you know, the Roman pagans, um, you know, if their kids weren't going to be um, fruitful, right, if they wanted a boy and they got a girl or vice versa, um, their solution was like, we're just going to throw the kid out and just let him die of exposure. And so the early Christians, it was really strange because they were very hated by the Romans. But instead, what they would do is they would go and they would pick up these children that the Romans had abandoned, and then they would, they would raise them as their own. And this weird thing happened is actually shame started coming over these pagan Romans because they saw the goodness of what the Christians were doing by raising the children that no one else wanted. And so uh, it, it started to slowly change how, 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 the, how the Romans viewed the Christians. And there's actually a lot he was telling me about uh, in, in church history uh, and, and in ancient history uh, about what is written about the early church, there's this, um, this guy named Julian the Apostate, at least the Christians refer to him as Julian the Apostate. He was the, the last pagan emperor of Rome, and he actually writes this letter to chastise the pagan priests because of the work that the Christians are doing. And so he writes in this letter to the pagan priests, and he says, he says, he says when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked, by the pagan priest, or our priest, then I think of the impious Galileans, which is how he refers to the Christians, how, and I observe the fact that they devoted themselves to philanthropy. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. And all men see that the people lack nothing. And so this, this pagan emperor Julian is writing to basically shame the, the pagan priest because of the charity that he sees in the Christian church. And in fact, through, through this, these writings and certain things that have happened, that, that actually they start to praise the God of the Christians because of his goodness and his compassion and his love. And uh, we also have this church historian, Eusebius of Caesarea, who later became a bishop, but you don't want to hear about all that. But anyways, he writes about um, in Caesarea where he lived, uh, there was a famine and that famine was followed by a plague where most of the inhabitants died. And 
Uh, Caesarea was a large area, and so people would flee to the countryside to get away from, from uh, the infection, the plague that was coming. Uh, but this is what, what Eusebius says. He says, all day long, uh, some of them, the Christians, tended to the dying and to the burial of countless numbers of ones in their care. Others gathered together from all parts of the city and a multitude of those with, who withered from famine, and they distributed bread to them all. This idea that when, when those who are godless pagans were fleeing for their own safety, Christians were walking into these cities that were infested with the plague, caring for people as they died, burying bodies of those who they did not know, and because of the work of the early Christians, because these people were hated, like the Romans hated them, and these early Christians in response, they chose to sacrifice their own lives, they chose to raise pagan children, they chose to care for pagans who were dying, and they did such incredible acts of compassion that God was glorified. And that even those who did not believe in Jesus had to take pause, had to take notice, and it's recorded in history, the deeds they did. So I'm having this conversation with this guy, and he's telling me, like, all about these things and, and, and like, the history and how, how philanthropic or, or charitable uh, works began in the church. And um, we start talking about the book of Acts, which um, I'm sure you guys— uh, are familiar with Acts 42, the ending of Acts. We're going to look at the, sec- the ending of Acts chapter 2 and, and the beginning of Acts chapter 6. Um, and so he references verse in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I'm going to read through 47. You guys are probably familiar. So we're talking about this, and he says, uh, he, he's referencing this. He says, in Acts 2, 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And as we're talking, he's, he's explaining to me, like, what's really happening here. So I don't know how much you guys understand about first century Jewish culture, what's going on. But what happened here in these verses is miraculous. The fact that these people are binding together, they're sharing their, their goods, and they're really living as if they're one family. So things that, that we don't often understand about what's going on. So most of the, the Jewish people who lived around Jerusalem had been taken captive um, by first the Greeks, um, you know, Alexander the Great and his first conquest, and then the Romans come in and take over. And in, in both of these times, uh, people are basically captured and taken to live somewhere else in an attempt to try to destroy their culture, to try to destroy who they are as a people, to make them more subservient to the empire. And so what's happened is all these Jewish people have been spread out all over. They've been taken away, so they've lost their culture, they've lost their family. And so now they all speak different languages. They've been raised in different places. And so we have this early church that people don't have long history of family relationships in the city. One, because they were taken captive and they lived somewhere else. And so it's not like, hey, we've all lived here our whole lives and our grandma and our grandpa all lived here. And so there's this broken family relationship because of that. But this other thing is happening 
these these Jewish families that have been taken away, they consider it an honor or a privilege to be able to be buried in Jerusalem. And so what we have happening is we have elderly couples for their final years of their life moving back to Jerusalem in hopes that they would die in Jerusalem and be able to be buried in a holy place in Jerusalem. And so because these elderly people are there, their families are not coming with them. And so we have a whole bunch of elderly people that there's, there's no family there to take care of them. We have these broken family units. And so like in this early church in Jerusalem, like it's really messed up relationally. The families are not families like we think. And sure, they could have said, well, why don't your kids take care of you? Or why don't some relatives you have? But we have this weird, broken family situation going on here at Acts that we don't really realize is underlying this story. We also have this issue where they don't have a common language, right? These people we see on the day of Pentecost, that they're people from all these different places, and it took like a supernatural miracle of God for them to speak in a supernatural language and have supernatural interpretation for them to even understand the gospel. So you have all these people that have gotten saved because of that. And so we have no common family connections. We have no, no common language. We have limited social connections. Pe- these people were not from Jerusalem. They just happened to be there on the day of Pentecost, and they heard the gospel and got saved, and, and they were basically rejected by their own families. They're like, well, hey, we're going to come live with you guys. And, and then these people, they had no formal structure. Like they had lived and worshiped in the temple forever. And now they have this new faith in Jesus. And so like there's no church building, there's no system, there's no plan. Like there's, there's just Jesus. They have no formal doctrinal statements. They have no creeds. Like they are way less organized than we are. And I think sometimes we, we miss out on the sociological anomalies that were going on in the early church and how difficult it was. See, I think what we often miss and what me and my friend were talking about is this idea that that we often, we attempt to do these things, we attempt to recreate these things that happened in the early church through our systems and through our methodologies, but the early church, they had, had none of that. And I think sometimes we even try to conjure up emotion, right? We're really good at, like, putting pictures of starving children. Do, do we not have slides? Did they not happen? I don't know. Okay. Um, I thought there was a slide. Okay. Anyways, and so we, we do all these things to try to— Listen, I listened to this, uh, this pitch, right? And uh, this lady, she came up this meeting I was at, and she put the pictures of, like, starving kids on the screen, right? And— it was like, oh, look at their terrible life and look at all the bad things that have happened to them. Don't you feel sorry for them? You should give money to them. And to be honest, it was really compelling, right? Like I was in, even in tears a little bit. I was like, wow, I do feel really bad for them. You know, I think, I think the issue is this. It's like sometimes we do like instinctively, like we look at people and we feel bad for them. And I think that compassion is okay. But what about the people that when we look at them, we don't feel bad? What about the people who aren't from where we're from, who don't speak our language, who don't have common cultural ties, who we have excuses why we think they ought to be doing better than they really are? What about the people who we don't instinctively think? And, and I think this really highlighted, and we were talking about one of the problems with the way that we go about doing things that I think the early church had right. See, often we, al- we rely on our own emotions. We rely on our own sense of moral convictions. We rely on our own ideas. But I think those things, they, they, they lead us into problems. But the early church, they didn't have 
any of those common social issues. They didn't have common language. They didn't have buildings. They didn't have systems, and I'm all for systems. But what they did have was the Holy Spirit inspiring them to love one another sincerely. And so my first point tonight of the three is the Holy Spirit is the only pure motivation for acts of compassion. The Holy Spirit is the only pure motivation for acts of compassion. These people in Acts, the, the only thing that changed in their life was that the Holy Spirit indwelled them. And because of that, they're taking care of somebody else's grandmas and grandpas. They're taking care of somebody else's family. They're care, taking care of people who don't even speak their language. They're taking care of people who are nothing like them. Not because they get social media likes out of it. Not because uh, it's going to make them look better. And see, this is the problem. When, when our, our compassion is motivated by anything other than what the Holy Spirit is doing in our heart, it leads to selfishness. It leads to pride. It leads to this idea of I'm doing a good thing. You see, I think it's a sad thing in our culture, and it says something about our motivation when helping the poor can become a multi-million dollar industry where people like make millions of dollars about making videos about all the good things we're going to do. And I think what happens so often is we actually tend to not be compassionate because we're objectifying those people who are less fortunate. We're objectifying those people who are in need because they're other than us. They're the people that need our help. They're not one of us. And, and I think what happens when the Holy Spirit works in our life, it causes us to see the image of God in others. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only the Holy Spirit can cause us to see the image of God in others and, and draw us to compassionately love others the way that Jesus loves them. Because any other motivation will, will cause us to fall short. Any other motivation other than this will not lead to the glory of God. And this is the real struggle, because when we have good plans and we have good systems and we have good ideas, we fall in love with our ideas and we fall in love with our systems and we fall in love with who gets the credits. But the Holy Spirit always brings glory to God. You know, there are people, I know that this is, you know, I don't know if I can talk about politics. It'd be all right, right? Listen, there's this false dichotomy, and, and maybe it's somewhat true, that like some people hate the poor, and some people care about the poor, and if you don't think like I do, then you must hate everybody or whatever. I don't know. But like here's the thing. Here, here's what's really going on, is these people have an idea of how to fix the problem, and these people have an idea of how to fix the problem, and we all love our ideas about the solution more than we love the people that we need to serve. And the problem is, when our motivation is not pure, it becomes about my idea or my system or my solution or what I can do. And to be honest, it's quite prideful to think that you and your own ability would ever have the compassion to love someone who's unlovable. Without the Holy Spirit's work in our heart to draw us to sincere compassion, to view people as image bearers of the living God, there's no way this can happen. There's no way that the early church should have responded the way they did. There, every sociological hurdle that they had to overcome to be able to share their possessions, to care for one another, was there. And it wasn't because of their great systems. It wasn't because of 
all the money they had. It wasn't because of the, the abundance of resources or buildings or property they had. It was because the Holy Spirit was doing something sincere and pure in their hearts. And so we have to ask ourselves, why do I want to do acts of compassion? Why do I want to do acts of kindness? Is it, is it motivated because that's what the Holy Spirit is drawing me to? Or are there ulterior, ulterior motives? Why do I want to go on this trip? Is because I think it'll be nice if I put this picture on my Instagram stories and people will think I'm a nice person. All these things come into play. And so uh, I know I'm having this conversation with this guy and we're going back and forth about all this and, and we're kind of ranting and, uh, I, you know, we're locked in talking about early church history and, and what happened in, in the early church to make all this happen. And so the question comes up, well, well, if like the early church had it figured out, like where do we go wrong? Did you ever ask that question like, man, it seems like they had it figured out in Acts chapter 2, and then here we are. And so uh, he's, he's telling me all about how we got here. So there's this thing called the Protestant Reformation. You guys heard about that one time, right? More history lessons, right? So he's teaching me history. Um, you know, one of the interesting things that happened is that, that the church became famous because of its philanthropic work because of the compassion it did for orphans and widows and the poor and the sick and the elderly. And, and as Christianity grew in favor and in power, eventually we get to a place in our history where the church and the state have this unholy marriage. And, and during that time, the church and the state, they operated as one. And so all orphanages were run by this joint venture. Um, and so what happens at the Protestant Reformation is kind of what happens in a lot of divorces, right? You get this and I get this, and, and it's really, really weird how that happened. Um, man, I think sometimes we don't, we don't think enough about, like, what happened in the past for us to even be able to worship the way we do. Uh, but there were terrible atrocities that happened um, because of the, the idea of the divine right of kings where, where the church and state was, was merged together. Then um, the God-appointed king would just kill all the people who were Protestants, um, and that was kind of what happened. There was lots of really terrible things that happened uh, in the name of God because of that system. And, and so we, we started seeing this pushback um, from people. You know, it's called uh, the Protestant resistance um, movement, uh, where, where this idea that we would separate church and state. And what happens as people start pushing towards this idea of separation of church and state is the compassion ministries like orphanages— that the church had started now became the custody of the state. And, and we kind of gave them up because, after all, that's where the resources were. That's where the power was. They had the ability. They had the resources. They had, had the opportunity. And so the church, especially the Protestant church, is struggling. Now, there were, there were those in, in the Dutch Reformed Church. In the Dutch Reformed Church, almost every local church had their own orphanage. And there are many examples where, where there are still things happening. But by and large, by the time we get to the American system of government inspired by people like John Locke, Thomas Paine, this idea of separation of church and state has set in. And what's happened is the state is trying to do philanthropic work, is trying to do compassion ministry, but their motivation is not the Holy Spirit anymore. The motivation is not because I see people as image bearers of a living God. The motivation has become a social utility. It has 
has become something to fix a problem. And in some cases, it became a political tool. And so what was so strange, so this guy, I didn't tell you this, so this guy uh, that I was talking to, he's, he's reformed, he's cessationist, he doesn't believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I'm having this conversation with him, and I'm saying, okay, well, what's, what's the issue then? He goes, he says, well, he's like, well, Acts chapter 6 tells us the answer. And so let's look at Acts chapter 6. I'm going to read Acts 6, 1 through 7. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, that means those who spoke Greek or were not Hebrew speaking, right? The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews, those who spoke Hebrew, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give, them, give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timar, Carminius, Nicholas, from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And so I'm having this conversation, and, and my friend who's, Presbyterian, Reformed, cessationist, he goes, you know, the problem is this. He says, the only thing, the only way to untangle all of this messed up stuff, I mean, I told you about all the sociological issues in the church, and, and really what we have in the church is we have a us and them thing, this, this thing that really would go on forever. These people speak Greek and don't have Jewish culture, and these people, people speak Hebrew, and they adhere more strictly to Jewish culture, and basically people are complaining because saying, you're neglecting our people, and it's a us against them. And the wisdom, the wisdom from Peter off the bat to see what the Holy Spirit is doing, what, what maybe you don't realize is the names of the men that I read, those are Greek names. Those are not Hebrew names. And so Peter, Peter says, listen, I get it. There's a problem. People are being taken advantage of, and we have a real problem. And the early church had no system to overcome this. And so Peter's solution is this. Let's find people who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. You see, I think what we have, have often, we've lost sight of this idea is that the Holy Spirit is the only thing that can help us. So without the Holy Spirit, we're powerless to overcome the darkness. And what happens so much in our culture, and I think there are so many people who are well-meaning, that want to do good things, and maybe it even is the Holy Spirit pulling their heart in that direction. But we try to penetrate the darkness of our world and our own abilities. And can I just be real honest? It's complicated. It is. When people's lives are broken and messed up, it's complicated. And it's arrogant of us to think that we can walk in and be the savior in someone's situation that somehow we have the answer. The early church knew that the only way to deal with this complicated situation 
was to have people who were full of the Holy Spirit because that was their only hope. It was their only hope to deal with this complicated issue. And today, in our world, people bicker and fight about the best way to help people. And I think what we in the church have missed is that we have given up our God-given right to be the ones who care for the poor and oppressed and marginalized. And we've abdicated for people who don't even believe there is a Holy Spirit. Because we have something that no one else has, and that is the Spirit of God living in us, empowering us to do things that no human institution will ever be. But, but all too often we're comfortable to sit back and go, that's messy, and that's difficult, and it's complicated to figure it out. Listen, later on, right, in Paul's writing, he has to give all these instructions to the church about how to decide who gets food and who gets money and who gets support and who doesn't and what if she's a widow and she's young or if she's old and if she gets married again. And listen, it gets complicated when we wait in to the brokenness of other people's life. And so we need the Holy Spirit to help us figure out how to be compassionate, but how to be wise. You see, I think most of you, I don't know. I, I like to believe that most of you are generally compassionate people. I like to think if there was an opportunity for you to help someone, you wouldn't have the attitude that you're better than them or that um, you, you don't need to help them. Hopefully you would do something helpful. But what, what happens so often is what we do is it's surface level. Because what we've done is we've taken this God-ordained role of the deacon— and we've made it everything but what God intended it to be. Listen, the reason that God created deacons in the church because people were being neglected. Because widows weren't being taken care of. And now, we have deacons in our churches that oversee things that have nothing to do with people. Because deacons were created to care for people who no one else was caring for. And I think one of the things that the church has done through this historical thing that happened with the separation of church and state, we have ceased to do one of the very things that God put us here to do. It's almost like there's this reversal. And maybe, maybe you have friends that would share this sentiment. I don't know. It seems like one that I hear a lot. But we've gone from this place where pagan emperors marveled at the compassion of the Christians to a place where secularists scoff at the church for its lack of compassion. And God is not glorified. And sometimes it's easy to, to point out the mistakes of other people. It's easy to say, well, this person should do more or that person should do more. But I believe that the only hope for the darkness that people face, the only hope for the brokenness in people's lives is the power of God's Spirit working in them. How selfish of us to have that power within us and keep it to ourselves. I told you earlier my response to this guy's question when he asked me why I wanted to be a foster parent. 
I'm talking about, I'm doing this because I think it would be sin if I didn't. He says, what do you mean by that? I said, well, if God has blessed me with resources and I just waste them on myself and my own comfort, I think that's sinful. Because the things that God blessed me with, he blessed me with them so that I could be a blessing. So, um, let me tell you another part of the story that I, I told this guy when we were talking. Um, we were doing, uh, I'm trying not to cry when I say this, we were doing our training and we heard some really, really terrible stories about things that people go through. Because part of it, they have to help you understand. Like, like I didn't realize how privileged and special my godly Christian home with parents who loved me and took care of me was. Sometimes I think we don't understand the depth of the brokenness and the hopelessness that people go through. And to be honest, as I hear stories, as I've now lived in those stories, I've heard them firsthand out of the mouths of three-year-olds, it makes me angry at the brokenness. And my first response was to be angry at God. God, why? Would you allow such terrible things to happen to your creation? And I, as I was angry at God, I heard God say, well, what are you going to do about it? You see, I think somehow, somewhere within us, we've thought that that's not my responsibility. That's somebody else's job. That's like, I didn't sign up to be a social worker. Right? I didn't sign up to be a nurse. I didn't sign up to work in the helping field. I'm not a counselor. I'm not any of those things. I'm just the person trying to make some money and have a good life. And I think the problem is we think that what God has given us is for us. And we think God gave us those things so we could spend them on ourselves. We think that God gave us the Holy Spirit so that we could have a good worship service or so that we could have courage to get over whatever trouble we're facing, we didn't realize that the reason that God put his spirit in us was to equip us to face the darkness wherever we find it. And instead, we sit back and we critique and criticize how those without the Holy Spirit are doing such a terrible job. What do you think? And I think that leads me to one of my last points here tonight. If we say that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, but lack compassion, we deceive ourselves. If we say that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, but lack compassion, we deceive ourselves. There's this guy on YouTube. I like to watch his videos. He, um, he goes around to churches on Sunday morning, and he holds up a sign that says, on one side it says, God bless the homeless veterans. On the other side it says, please, please pray for the homeless veterans. He's a veteran. He's not homeless. But he, he goes and he, he just holds a sign. He just shares that he feels, feels like God put it in his heart to ask people to care about the homeless, especially homeless veterans, because he's a veteran, and apparently several people he knows have ended their life due to mental illness. So he stands in front of churches on Sunday morning on a public sidewalk, and he holds the sign. And then he posts the videos as elders and deacons and congregants and pastors come at him and cuss at him and tell him to leave 
to get off their property and to call the police on him. And maybe one in ten churches invite him in to a worship service or don't try to run him off. See, I think sometimes, I said this earlier, but I think sometimes we like the idea of being compassionate to those in need. We just don't want them to be on our front porch. We like the idea of going somewhere else where the darkness lives and helping for a while and then coming back home to comfort. We do not like the idea of inviting that person to sit on the pew with us. We don't like the idea of that person sitting at our table and eating a meal with us. And it's because the Holy Spirit has not helped us to see the image of God in those people. We have not allowed the Holy Spirit to do a deep enough work in us if we claim to be full of the Holy Spirit, but lack compassionate for the least in our society. And we focus on things, and now we have churches with big buildings and big budgets and means and creeds and doctrinal statements and organization and systems and policies. And our compassion pales in comparison to those persecuted Christians in the early church who loved pagans, who adopted pagan children, who cared for the sick and the dying, who hated them. We have a rich legacy in the Christian church of compassion that's inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. But somehow we've abdicated our responsibility. We said it's somebody else's problem it's not spiritual enough. We say things like, well, just preach the gospel. What does it mean that Jesus preached good news to the poor? I really believe that the world does not think that God is good. The world does not think that God is compassionate or long-suffering because we have not done a very good job demonstrating his compassion and his long-suffering and his goodness. We have portrayed God as selfish and self-serving and self-centered. We've portrayed him as a God who's for people like us, who think like us and act like us and live like us. But you can't be full of the Holy Spirit and not be full of compassion. Tonight I'm going to close with a passage from James chapter 1. If you want to turn there. James chapter 1, verse 23 through 27. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do it is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently 
into the perfect law that gives freedom continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it. They will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I realize that the problem is bigger than what I can solve. And I realize by preaching this sermon to you tonight that none of you are going to go out and change the world immediately. I get that. But I believe that we have to do more as a church. We have to be more creative. We have to be more courageous in our compassion and what it looks like to serve the people around us. We have to stop viewing our possessions and our benefits as our own. And we have to start asking you the question, God, how can I glorify you with the things you bless me with? How can I show your compassion? I don't expect you to share my conviction, and it is that. It's just my conviction. It's not something that I can impress upon you, but I personally believe it's sin for me to have the means to help those who are suffering and to do nothing. But I think that's what the church at large does. Tonight, we're not going to come forward for prayer. because I think that would let you off the hook. What I really hope is that you go home and you think about this when you try to go to sleep tonight. I pray that you go home and you think about this as you walk to your class tomorrow, that you would think about and be mindful of the people who don't enjoy the benefits that you enjoy. And you would ask yourself, God, how can I live my life in such a way that the Holy Spirit compels me to compassion and empowers me to pierce the darkness with wisdom, with insight that doesn't come from human understanding. I'm not saying we need to go out and I'm not saying we need to abolish Social Security. I'm not saying we need to like dismantle the Department of Human Services. I'm not, I'm not saying that we don't participate in those things. I'm saying that God has called us to more. that we have a higher calling. And to be honest, it's not something that I think you need to go home and pray about. I think it's something you just need to do. And that's why we're not going to have a response time tonight, because this is not a sermon that I think you need to pray about whether or not you should be compassionate. If you have to pray about that, then you probably aren't following Jesus. So I'm going to pray tonight. Then we're going to be dismissed. And I guess we're all going to eat a cookout. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord, would you compel us and inspire us by your Holy Spirit to courageous compassion?
to love people regardless of what they look like or how it's going to affect us or how messy it's going to get? Or would you give us the pure motivation that comes from your spirit? Lord, would you empower us? Would you give us wise strategies of how we can do the most good with the resources that we have? Lord, would you help us to be a force where people around the world, where those who laugh and scoff at the church for our inconsistencies, that they would look and they would see your compassion and your love and your mercy on display. Lord, if we all got what we deserved, we would be dead. Lord, forgive us where we pointed fingers at others and say they got what they deserved. Lord, would you change something in our hearts that we would really walk as people full of your Holy Spirit, that the fruit of the Spirit would be evident in our life, that people would look at the way we treat servers, would look at the way we treat people who we view as less than us, would look at the way we we treat the homeless or those who've made bad choices in life and say they're full of love and joy, peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Lord, would you let your Holy Spirit's work show through us in the way that we love those who are unlovable. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Troy Chi Alpha podcast. For more information about the ministry of Troy Chi Alpha, you can look us up online at troychialpha.com. You can email us at troychialpha at gmail.com or find us on social media at Troy Chi Alpha. Thanks for listening.